Right. Um, let's get to the main business of that. Let's read the um, A pretty provocative title. How to educate a general. Any of you familiar with First World War historiography will know that generals get a pretty bad name most of the time. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's you know, particularly uh, brilliant that we have um, not only uh, a scholar who spent his career trying to understand this particular problem and make it better, uh, but also um, it's part of our living link uh, with Canada um, and essentially you know, from the, the Royal Military College uh, who can give us that sort of sense of connection uh, transatlantic, not just about the Americans always. Um, he has a background in flying helicopters, so he had the, the, the service experience first before becoming essentially an academic. Um, and uh, it, it would be worth noting that uh, he writes on a series of different issues, and I won't get to have right, I'll tell you. Theories of air power, leadership, military education, in particular, uh, in particular uh, the science of bombing, uh, operational research, you know, bomber command. Um, and the report on the Officer Development Board, Major General Roger Rowley, who's going to be mentioning today in Education of Canadian Forces. 2011, published Cold War Fighters, Canadian Aircraft Procurement, 1945-54, and is now currently working on the biography of Air Marshal Wilfred Curtis, Chief of the Air Staff of the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, in that uh, post-war period. Well, thank you very much indeed for being our speaker today. Rob, thank you very much. Well, yeah, you can thank me after we're done. That's what I usually say to people. If you like what you heard, then please thank me. But if you didn't, then throw soft objects. <clears throat> and uh, at least the sun is starting to break out, so I won't have to be quite as scintillating as I, as I thought I might if the, if the rain continued. Um, let me start by saying um, that while I am a public servant of the Government of Canada, I am also a, an academic with full academic freedom. So what I will talk about are, are my views which sometimes I think line up with public policy and other times probably don't. But <clears throat> uh, having dabbled in the field of military education for the last two decades, um, I've gotten to the point where I'm at least willing to share my thoughts. Um, now, Ruth has run off without telling me how to operate the device, but let's see what happens when I push the space bar. Right, <clears throat> so one airplane picture. Um, just for the pilots in the room or the hardware techies uh, uh, gurus in the room. Um, and yeah, <clears throat> would I rather be doing that than, than sitting trying to work in an education environment? Depends on the day and depends on the weather. Um, but all this to say that I came to education 21 years ago without any qualification, without any background in education. And that is one of the, I guess, the damning themes of military education generally is that we take practitioners who are very good at what they do and put them either in a classroom or in charge of classrooms without giving them any of the, the how-to, the why you need to um, stuff that someone uh, would get if they were doing an undergraduate or need a graduate degree in education. So that's a bit of a, a, bit of a concern. I would also, I see a couple of, I think, uh, faces from last Tuesday night with Dr. Murray. Are there those who were there when he was talking about the... Okay, just one actually. So, uh, Dr. Murray last week talked about uh, how the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College or course was pretty much broken. Uh, I will tell you that there are things that work okay and things that could be improved. And some things I think work as well as any um, over the next few minutes. And I'm gonna try and go at the speed of light so there's time for discussion. Um, here's the bottom line up front. It's a highly complicated thing that we're going to talk about. 
Uh, and it's not just about generals, and I'll come to that in a few minutes. But if I can steal something from Clausewitz and make a bit of a, a, a mush of it, um, you would think that education is simple because we all at some point in our lives experience lots of education. But in fact, the simplest thing is always very difficult and complex when it comes to figuring out what needs to be done and doing it. Um, and I should actually uh, tell a quick anecdote here about a more recent experience, again, uh, with a German officer involved. We had, about 15 or 16 years ago, sat at the Staff College in Toronto and said, you know what, we're not sure we're delivering the product that the military needs. How do we validate, to use a bit of edu-speak, how do we validate what we're doing? So we know that the customer is getting the sorts of graduates that can satisfy the uh, systemic needs. We really didn't know, and our education experts said, well, we can validate training, but we've never tried to validate education. So, oops, that's a problem, isn't it? Anyway, it happened that one of our students happened, was the, the chief of quality assurance of the Fittings Academy in, uh, in Hamburg, and he said, ah, oh, well, I can come to talk to you about this, this, the whole thing about the validation, about measuring whether you're doing things right or not, and I thought, this is wonderful, because the Germans can measure everything. So. <clears throat> We had a quiet seminar in an afternoon, a few of us showed up, and, and he leaned on the podium more or less like this and said, well, the first thing I must tell you is trying to measure the effectiveness of education is a real bitch. <laughs> <clears throat> From there, we went on to have a, a rich discussion about the fact that it is very hard indeed to know if you're educating the general and if you're educating the general properly to satisfy the needs of the service, or in the case of Canada, the services. Okay. So that's my real German story. Here is the sort of larger remit that I think we're talking about. Okay, this comes from a 1969 study. Uh, anywhere the things are underlined from here to the end, I didn't put emphasis added on several slides, but that is emphasis added. So <clears throat> the, chief, uh, the chief of defense staff, someone who had seen combat, who had seen reorganization of the, of the Canadian military, and everything in between, said these words, without a properly educated, educated, ooh, effectively trained, now he's differentiating, professional officer corps, doomed at best to mediocrity and at worst to disaster. Well, what in the name of heaven does that mean? Now, that's very qualitative. How do I measure that? Goes back to the German problem. But that's, that is the remit. That is what professional military education should be doing for us. Okay, so the next, I hope, about half hour, so there's lots of time for questions. Um, I'm going to try to define some concepts as I understand them. Um, I'm going to look at the definition of the education requirement for the general and in a very large sense of the word, look at the programs that we offer in Canada which look awfully like the programs offered in the UK, in the US, in Australia, the ABCA nations. Uh, you hear of the five eyes or the four eyes from time to time. That's the group of sort of English-speaking nations that were allies in the Second World War. And then I'm going to make a few observations and conclusions and hopefully throw the floor open to some <coughs> lively discussion about what or we might or might not be doing properly. To educate. Am I talking, as I showed earlier, about education? Am I talking about training? Where does learning come into it? And does it matter? What about learning organizations and lifelong learning? How do these sort of modern terms fit into to educate? Or do they? Uh, should they? The other half of the... The title is, deals with general. So 
What is a general and what competencies does she or he need? How do they acquire these competencies? Is it in a classroom? Is it by doing things? Is it a combination of all of, these, all of those and more? And should I be worried about using this generic term general or should I be thinking more specifically about flag officers or air officers? Are there differences between the three services? I'll use the British model of three services. And where does the officer corps come in? And I'll come back to that in a minute. But it's certainly part of the deal. And there's a larger thing called the profession of arms. So I can't talk about the general without including all of these things. I can't talk about education without including all of those ideas. So how does it all fit together? Well, we're in Oxford. We're going to use a concise Oxford dictionary to define education. And it's a noun, development of character or mental powers. Mental powers, okay, to educate, to give intellectual, moral, and social instruction train or instruct for a particular purpose. So it seems to be tending to the idea end of the spectrum, whereas training, active process of teaching or learning a skill or a discipline. Well, there's the discipline of history, there's the discipline of, but a discipline or a skill might also be something that we would associate with, with technical trades. Okay, to train, again, it's some sort of practice that we do. Maybe physical, but maybe also intellectual. Okay, and finally, to learn, okay, to gain knowledge of or skill in by study. So in the classroom, do we have students? Do we have pupils? Do we have learners? Does it matter how we see the difference? Is there a difference between them? Now, something that's not in, in the concise Oxford, uh, in fact, are learning outcomes. Everybody, everybody more or less heard, of, heard that term before? No, not at all? Maybe? Okay. So learning outcomes is something that's relatively new, but it is effectively what is what product do you want? What capacities, competencies, abilities do you want the graduate of whatever it is you're doing to have? Now, by the way, learning and learner were not found in the concise Oxford. I just throw why I'm not sure, but they weren't there. Um, now, onto these more modern things: learning organizations. Okay, this is defined by a chap by the name of Peter Senge, the education guru in the United States in the last decade or so. A learning organization demonstrates constant reflection and improvement. So, trying to make things better. In a military context, what we call that a lessons learned, an after action reflection sort of uh, concept, perhaps. Mental models that help in taking action. Gosh, that sounds like doctrine manuals that the military uses all the time. That sounds like public policy statements. Um, commitment, rather than acquiescence, to a shared vision. And Rob and I talked about this over lunch when the general comes in the room and says, I think we're going to do a left flanking, and everyone says, that makes sense to me. Is that commitment to, or is it acquiescence to? Do we simply agree because we have to, or do we agree because we're committed to that course of action or that philosophy? And finally, open dialogue. And we can come back to that in questions too, because that's not something that we would normally associate with the officer corps. And I use the we in the broadest context because I would disagree with what I just said. But like I say, we can come back to it. Lifelong learning, largely a result of the rapid pace, uh, the, the, the exponential development of technology over the last 30, 40 years, um, but not necessarily, because knowledge and technology go hand in hand. Are we committed to being lifelong learners? Or are we, as Dr. Murray said last week, he knows generals in the US Army who have not read a book. So 
since they went through staff college. And I know an anecdote from Canada where a general was interviewed about what was he reading, and he said, reading? I don't have time for reading. I'm too busy doing my job. Well, that's kind of scary, actually. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to stay on this education theme for a few more minutes. In the 1950s, an American by the name of Benjamin Bloom developed a taxonomy of learning. So we call it Bloom's Taxonomy. When I took this idea to higher command and staff, directing staff about 10 years ago, they said, is this something to do with horticulture? <laughs> I said, no, not so much. So but that kind of confirmed for me that they weren't necessarily on the same page that I had just found. Because I didn't know much about Bloom's Taxonomy until about 15 years ago. But it, he breaks, Bloom breaks learning down into three large domains. Psychomotor, doing things. So can I fly the airplane such that the number of landings I have are the same as the number of takeoffs? Hopefully, yes. Cognitive, do I understand the process of flying? And effective, am I going to use that airplane, that war machine, in the right way? And I'm relating this to the military profession, but it can be related to any profession, to any undertaking. Am I going to use my safe-cracking skills to work with the police or against the police? So values and morals come into being able to do things and thinking about how I do or why I do things. I'll also talk quickly about styles of learning. It's not associated with Bloom, but for those who learn by seeing things, you are the visual learners who are appreciating these slides. For those who learn by, by listening, those are the oral learners, and you're hopefully getting something out of my babbling. And for the kinesthetic learners, in a sort of an ideas environment, hopefully by question and answer, by toying with some of the things I've said and shown, you'll learn that way. But we all know the people who get, this, get something from Ikea and they're going to put it together immediately, damn the instruction sheet. Those are the kinesthetic learners, the hands-on people. Back to Bloom's for a second. So you can see it's not just a blob of knowing about stuff or knowing about values. If we look at values, oops, sorry, I'll just get backwards. Okay, let's look at values for a second. We receive values, okay? We, we listen, sit and listen to somebody talking about, uh, I don't know, the different sort of ethical models. Great, fine, I can regurgitate that, but do I really believe it? Maybe not. If I <clears throat> get right into it, if I'm a philosopher, or perhaps if I'm a practitioner of a certain philosophy, then I'm going to act based on my values. And so that's the range here. Psychomotor, reflex movements of, of the baby, or in fact of my knee sometimes if it's working, right through being able to do skilled moment, mo uh, movement, sorry, so I can actually land the airplane without scaring most people in it, um, to non-discursive communication. This is the Olympic ice dancer who would say, how can anyone possibly do that? Well, perhaps they don't even know, but they have been able through practice and, and certain physical abilities to do something magical with, with their body. I want to focus a bit though on the cognitive domain. To know something is not necessarily the same as the ability to synthesize new ideas. And we'll talk about that a bit more using not so much this slide as this slide. And I apologize for the getting boarded off, off the internet. It, all the words are right, but you can't see some of the words. So at the bottom end, can I remember things? Can I regurgitate facts? Okay, fine. What does that get me? It gets me some knowledge. Do I understand the facts that I'm regurgitating? That's important too. And can I apply things really without challenging why they work the way they work or why ideas or why certain knowledges go together? That's all great stuff. But that is what are called, these are what are called lower order uh, competencies. It's really getting up into being analyzed, being able to analyze things and say, hmm, you know, this isn't working. I wonder why. I'm taking it apart a wee bit. 
to evaluate whole systems, whole paradigms, and say, oh, you know, this might have worked in 1842, but it's not working so much today in 2014. Why might that be? And then create, say, okay, there are all, that, that's all the information I have from those previous cases. I have a slightly different case. How can I come up with a solution that works today? So I'm creating something that's new and appropriate for my circumstances. So that's really where I would see, and most of us I hope would see, the general officer operating. Um, breaking it down into something simpler for jarheads and others, <laughs> and I, would say, I say that with, with great affection because the Marines I know are thinking men and women. So they have anecdotally been attributed with this notion, or these notions. Education allows a reason, they say, a reasoned response to an unpredicted set of circumstances. Whereas training produces a standardized response to predicted circumstances. So again, putting it back in the simple pilot mode, when I go out and practice emergencies and somebody closes a problem on me, I know what to do because I practiced it a thousand times. However, when someone says, deploy the squadron to Addis Ababa, then I've really got to sit and think about it because that's not something that I have practiced how to do. Is there a clear distinction between training and education? I would argue not. Some things that look very simple, in fact, take a, a whole lot of thinking. Some things that look fairly uh, complicated, maybe I can put into a bit of a process that helps me move along quickly until I get to the parts where things block a little bit. Professional education. Is there any difference between professional education and education generally? I don't really think there is so much as to say that it's nothing more than learning for, and I put military in square brackets, for any profession. Think about the medical profession, the engineering profession. Do these professions need some sort of competencies over which they have a, a range of controls? Okay, so I don't think it's unique to the military. Is it unique to the individual or is it pan profession? Do I need a brand new doctor who can do certain things and a more experienced specialist who can, can, can collaborate with that new doctor and maybe somebody who's running the hospital or the NHS uh, trust who understands how both of those other subsets uh, are working. Is it training or education? I think it's both of those and more. Um, lifelong learning? Yes, absolutely. Medical practice changes. Circumstances in the real world change. Uh, did we ever think there would be an air spring? Imagine the general officer who's sitting here saying, geez, I've got a turn at Oxford, and just this week I'm going to explode my brain by going to all these seminars that Rob just mentioned. That's part of lifelong learning. Hopefully, that lifelong learning is not happening just in one general's mind or one doctor's mind, but across the entire organization. If it's not, then you've got a problem, because one or two champions of a new idea probably won't take that idea to any sort of implementation. Do professions have some sort of a system where I take somebody who goes through a, a life sciences program, and I put them in a medical school, then I give them a specialist certification. Ultimately, they may be becoming the head of a research institution in a university, or, as I said, the head of an NHS uh, trust. Hopefully, yes, and hopefully there is some sort of system. Does it have to be very disciplined or very defined, or can it be just something where the profession understands that there are phases and stages of development? Um, okay, so let's leave park education for a minute uh, and look at the profession of arms. You say, well, this is about general. Well, I'm going to look at the profession, drill down to the general, and then expand it back out to the profession. 
So if we accept that a profession provides a service to a parent society, good so far, and the military profession provides service to the state, slash society, if you will, it is the last resort of the state, of the nation state. Generally speaking, if the military fails, it's largely because diplomacy has failed, maybe the economy has failed, um, there is no recourse but a military one, and if it fails, then arguably the state is in, in a bad way. Okay, so far, but it's generals who lead the profession. So if the generals have lost their way, then arguably the profession is now at some risk. And from Richard Gabriel, the other thing that's unique, and we can talk about police services, we can talk about fire services, but the military can send people to members of the profession to their deaths. Uh, the, the, the ethos and ethic of the police services in Canada is protect yourself, protect your buddy, then protect the public. And I look at that and scratch my head and say, that's not how I think it should be, but that in fact is, is the professional ethic of the police services in Canada. And I suppose if you're a constable out there all by yourself and you're lying in the ditch, shot or dead, then you're not of much value to protecting anyone else. So there perhaps is a, is, is a good reason for that, but the military tends to put the well-being of the state before the well-being of the individual. Okay, finally, the generalship or general is up there. And this is a true uh, extract from On War, and I have the On War expert in the back to tell me if I've taken it out of context, but hopefully Sir Hugh won't do that. Uh, but feel free to. Um, so, it's all about intellect. It's all about being sensitive and discriminating and using judgment, skilled intelligence. So Clausewitz has said this is a really nasty business we're involved in, but if you're going to get it right, if you're going to deal with the fog, you've got to have a mind, an intellect, you've got to be able to sort through the problems. Let's scoot ahead here to a British model, Wavell, at that other place about two hours as the crow flies. Is it roughly? I don't know. Well, as the helicopter flies probably about an hour from here, uh, just east or north of east. In 1939, he says in his generalship series, he says a general, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, Generals have to manage. And I thought when I heard this the first time, manage? What happened to lead or command? But he says, no, you have to provide the general at that point in the professional continuum has to be able to provide for the needs of the army. And then he goes on to say, and the general must be able to work with politicians. And if we think of the experience of the Great War and the interwar period with lots of cuts to defense and now a build up towards the Second World War, being able to work with politicians is fundamentally important for the health of the institution. He looks at a couple of human, more I would say human personal traits, be strict but not stern. And so don't be a complete, you know what, Canadian, um, nasty sort of piece of work, and have strength of character. So you have to know what you're about, you have to have personal courage, is I think what he's saying. You have to be able to say yes or no, mean it without being personal or vindictive. So what about general as a manager? Is it a manager in the field? What level of war in today's parlance? Is it the tactical level, brigade and below? Is it the operational level, level Afghanistan writ large? Or is it the strategic level, sitting in MOD and trying to figure out where the Army or the Air Force or the Navy or the, or the three services as a whole are going next? What level of manager do we want? The institutional manager, in other words. Um, and there is an operational corporate divide that I'm going to come back to uh, in a few minutes. Where do the generals come from? From the military profession as a whole. Is it a closed system? 
nationally, generally it is. Although we exchange officers from time to time at various points in their career, by and large, you cannot walk out on the street today, look for somebody with a big brain or lots of brawn and say, you know, the makings of a general, hi, can put on this uniform, let's go, because we're short of you and we really like you to sign on. No, we grow that individual from the point of being a very junior officer to the point where they're deemed to have the prof professional competencies and experience, and I'll come back to the experience part in a bit, so that they can fulfill the functions of a general officer, to be a manager of the profession and of the institution. And here are, those, here, here are the three large chunks of activity that, that I'm going to talk about now and again a little bit later. A steward, pardon the <coughs> silly me, the font's too big here, but leaders and stewards of the profession. So this is the affective domain. We're having a big deal in Canada right now about sexual assaults. And so the chief of defense staff has come out with a statement saying, this will not be tolerated. It's already happened in other countries, Australia already, uh, and to some degree in the States, I think. Um, so, as the steward of the profession, as the one person, the pinnacle of the profession who must espouse and demonstrate that he espouses the values of the profession, he has said, just stop. So that's the professional end of the, of the paradigm. The strategic end of the paradigm, that's really the management at the national level, trying to deal with the government, with the public, and with private organizations to make the institution as effective as it can be. And then finally, the easy part, if you want to call it the easy part, operations including warfighting. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to dive into, into Canadian experience for a bit, but as I said, having spoken to people at Defence Academy here, having spoken to Australians, uh, Americans, the Canadian national experience over the last 50 years is really not that much different, I think, than what other nations have have. Uh, done over time or, or the challenges that they've confronted over time. So in 1969, just by way of background, the three Canadian services had been smashed together by act of parliament. A corporal turned politician, not necessarily a sinister man, had decided that, that from his experience in the Air Force and then the Army in the Second World War, where he'd been seen off because the Air Force didn't need any more people, so he had to do basic training again, this time wearing a different colored uniform. He said that wasn't very practical, and when he became the minister in the mid-1960s, he said, I think we're going to have one service. And so, now that we've got one service, how are we going to develop officers for the one service? This is a point in time when lieutenant commanders were majors, but only briefly. Right, so, <clears throat> Rowley and his team, all of them combat veterans, this is where I wish I had my little baguette, but I think it's okay, developed this, this model of um, officer qualities. And they said, and it's in the original document, that soldierly values, ethos and ethics, were the most important thing, regardless of rank. The most important thing. Commandability was the next most important. And these were invariable across the career. So you might be commanding yourself in the cockpit of a, of a fighter, a platoon of infantry, or a boarding party, uh, or your ship's division, or perhaps a supply section in a, in a logistics depot, but you were commanding. So whether it was that or whether you were commanding the entire Canadian forces, it didn't really matter. It was fundamentally important and fundamentally important to do within some sort of a, a military ethos and ethics model that was good in terms of society. Everything else was variable. 
So I wanted a junior officer who was exceptionally skilled in whatever that occupation might be. Flying, you know, moving across the ground, sneak and peek, or doing something else. By the time that officer reached the position of chief of defense staff, all that good, you know, head in the trenches stuff was relatively unimportant. I wanted a mid-career officer to have service competence. So here I know how to fight my organization, my sub-sub organization, my little group of 10 or 15 people. Here I know, starting down at that point, how to fight the unit, my ship, my squadron, uh, my battalion. And by this point, I'm really capable at the formation level. So a brigade, a flotilla, or a fleet, uh, maybe a couple of air wings. That, too, becomes relatively less important as I reach the strategic level. Relatively less important. You're not going to forget about it. You're going to compare notes and say, well, what's the difference between a brigade and uh, an air wing uh, when you're having chats in the general officer's mess? But relatively less important. The third thing that starts about the time you reach mid-rank, relative mid-rank, is military expertise. How do I then understand how all of the services fit together and provide service to the state? And it becomes absolutely important when you reach the top of the, of the food chain. Now, three other things that are less related to the, the doing of the business. Intellect. You want your lieutenant to be relatively capable of tying shoes and knowing why. So you want somebody, and in fact, in the Roley model, all officers in the Canadian Forces would possess an undergraduate degree before being put in contact with troops. So you want somebody who has that big range of competent, intellectual competencies. And by the time that person reaches chief of defense staff, you would like them to be operating standing here with the doctoral view of the world. You want somebody who can deal, he calls it executive ability, but he's really the, the larger definition is someone who can deal with big, messy issues. And he doesn't use big, messy issues, but problems that seem to have no solution. Officers have to solve problems that have no solution. So relatively important for the junior officer, again, fundamentally important for the upper echelon. And finally, military executive ability, to be able to focus in on huge, huge systemic problems, national problems that have a military aspect to them, and provide advice to government and other organizations. So that's Rowley's model. Now, <clears throat> I think it's, it's close to brilliant. I showed it many years ago to then Major General Morrison from Australia. I think he's chief of army right now. And he said, wow, this is worth the price of my ticket from Australia just to see this one slide. So I feel kind of good about it. But I attribute it to people who have been through war, who had lived through the amalgamation of three services, who had had to deal both on the battlefield and in the boardroom with problems that defied solution. Okay, uh, I'm going to skip over that. That simply says that the problems facing Canada and, 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 in fact, NATO in 1969 are not that much different than they are today. So I think Rowley's model is still applicable. His guiding pre precepts for education, I think, are more important. Remain in consonance with scientific, technological, well, you can read it as well as I can, remain in, in contact with the world. Don't try and study things in, in, a, in a vacuum. Um, Provide the right material at the right time for the orderly development of qualities demanded of the officer at succeeding ranks. So a, a well-structured series of professional learning activities. If he was going to build one officer factory, 
Um, that's what one of his, his uh, study members called it, a Canadian Defence Education Centre. If you scratch that out and write, wrote in Defence Academy of the United Kingdom, you'd have roughly the same sort of construct. Eight, one cadet college, where uh, officer cadets would get an undergraduate degree in either science, engineering, or humanities. And then a Canadian Defence College, which had a staff school, providing basic understanding of the processes of running an organization. An Army staff course, well, he was an Army guy, so he said, well, we have to have an Army staff course because we always have had an Army special, blah, blah, blah. Um, I kind of agree. Um, a joint command and staff college. So what JSCSE is now, Canada had in the late 1960s in, in, in philosophical construct. An advanced military studies course, which looks awfully like what uh, um, <coughs> our Commodore Mason has just come through not too many months ago. And finally, a national security course, which was a pan-national defense college. When I say pan-national, about a third of the students were Canadian military, a third were Canadian civilians, some public servants, some private sector, and a third were foreign military or civilian. So it was all about national security, it wasn't about defense. Um, another quick one here. The courses must be sufficiently demanding to help build intellectual ability. Holy crap. I was going to say holy crap, but I'll, I'll be more gentle. Um, Intellectual ability and executive ability. So this was all about building intellectual capacity. Not to forget the military virtues, ethos and ethics, but to focus on brain power. And must include a postgraduate program. This is being said in 1969 amongst a, a group of officers, most of whom do not have an undergraduate degree, but recognize the value of learning, of education, and they're calling for a postgraduate program. Let's talk about staff colleges for a couple minutes because staff colleges feed into the general officer population. So <clears throat> one of my favorite pictures, the RCAF Staff College in 1943, the first course, it's got an army officer, so it's already joint, and it's got a large dog, so it already has some, some class. There's their philosophy in 1943. Not only do the officers learn how to do staff work, but they also have well-qualified speakers who talk about the broader context they liberalize this staff learning so that the graduates can put what they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis in a broader context. They push the intellectual envelope out. Okay? And this is what they say, in fact, only by such a means can students be given a broader, more authoritative outlook. Okay? So I'm not just sending aircraft against Germany. I'm not just training thousands and thousands of people. There's a broader global perspective that I have to think about. That continued in 1945 when the course ex first expanded to six months and then by 1959 it was a year long. And what I would draw your attention to is get his thoughts down clearly on paper. So this was about being able to wrestle a problem down to its constituent elements, build some sort of solution and explain that solution clearly on paper for someone reading it. It was the days before PowerPoint, obviously. Uh, by 1959, much the same argument is there with the utilitarian part of being able, be making this something useful to the profession. By 1959, there's also something that I think, and I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag at lunch, but looky here, I say, does not expound any easily universal applicable doctrines. The RCAF Staff College in 1959, I would argue, had recognized the fact that it was not about preparing people to do anything specific but giving them the intellectual skill set to do any next job. 
sound decisions in any situation. The Army, not quite that far along, um, but able to deal with a range of problems. And I would say here, um, when I went looking for evidence of what the Navy was doing, the Canadian Navy was doing at this point, they were sending some officers to Greenwich, but articles written about naval professional development tended to focus back on the how to fight the ship, which is vitally important, but wasn't at the same level as this. Now, in institutional bun fighting at this time, the Navy was doing perfectly well, so I suspect they reckoned that their professional development system prior to integration of the services was good enough. Okay, what was Canada doing at this time? In fact, what was most of NATO doing? There was a Cold War on, so we were arming ourselves and sitting there ready to go, and we were doing peacekeeping. And this is sort of the quintessential Canadian peacekeeping picture from Cyprus, where we spent 50-odd rotations of six months each. So things were pretty stable. And then, staying with the Canadian paradigm, things got really rocky. Not only was Gulf War I taking place in 1990, where we sent some folks, but we also had an indigenous population uprising in one part of the country. And it was the Army, the federal service, that was called out to deal with a provincial problem. Chief of Defense Staff at the time said, we cannot fail, which goes back to an earlier thought I had. That kind of went away fairly, fairly okay. Uh, nobody killed, not much burned or destroyed, but it certainly shocked everybody that we might have to call out the Army in Canada for an armed insurrection, because that is an AK-47 on the bad guy's back. Uh, and they had killed a, a police officer uh, early in the standoff. But the other things were worse and started a couple of years later. There we were, Canada going off to another peacekeeping operation, this time in Somalia. And lo and behold, within a couple of months, we have detained, tortured, and killed a Somali teenager. And we have the evidence there. That's one of the two perpetrators. Here's the other one. The first one tried to hang himself. The other one ends up on the cover of a national magazine and it leads to a provincial, uh, sorry, a federal uh, crown um, commission, uh, the title of which, of the report of which was Dishonored Legacy. Um, and it found huge problems with what the military was doing, not just after this is done, in fact, I think I've got my years off, virtually the same time, we send a Canadian commander to a peacekeeping operation, what's supposed to be, again, in, um, in Rwanda, and he's there, and so Canada has, is not targeted, but Canada feels responsible for the genocide that takes place in Rwanda. These are not things that a professional military should be allowing to happen at the individual level or at the operational level, and oh, by the way, at the strategic level, because two chiefs of defense staff end up looking for work because they handle the situation very badly indeed. One is, is let go almost immediately, and the other one about a year later, while he's trying to manage the, uh, the process, fails miserably. So we've had problems at the tactical, the operational, and the strategic level within the profession. And it leads to a decade of darkness with some pretty bitter pills for the military to swallow. In fact, the minister, having reported to the prime minister what he's going to do, sets up a monitoring committee, civilian oversight of the profession. And we are told that we will do certain things, particularly in regard to professional development, education, and leadership. Not great. Well, Dallaire, who's recovered sufficiently and has terrible PTSD and tries to kill himself several times, has recovered sufficiently that he is going to go off now and run a study on rebuilding the officer corps and produces a document called Officership 2020, which looks awfully like the sorts of things that Rowley and his crowd had discovered 
in the early 60s. So not much had changed. But we're talking now about transparent resource management. We're talking a little bit about here about the technical sophistication. These are themes that Rowley has talked about, but they're brought up again. Now, is this unique to Canada? I think not, because at roughly the same time, here's an MOD document that talks about more than just operations, higher management of resources. So again, I think there's evidence that this is a pan-Western nation, large Western nation uh, circumstance. They also develop, a little bit later, a framework that's much simpler than Rowley's, but does again look at expertise, cognitive capacities, intellectual capacities, social capacities, being able to deal with people that aren't necessarily, they don't look exactly the same as you and think the same as you, the ability to see change in the organization, transformation potentially, and professional ideology. So five important sets of competencies that all officers have to have, although they can vary with rank and responsibility. So uh, the bottom bullet here, I think, is the, is the critical one. Critical thinking, embracing and managing change, embracing, accepting, not acquiescing, Okay, and participating in a learning organization. So this is in our concept document for the year 2020. And now finally in a professional development system, how am I going to deliver that learning to the rank and file? I can do some of it through formal courses, but actually I want to break out into some other ways of doing it. Training where training is necessary, giving people the lower order information that they might need, education, hopefully to expand or explode their brain box, experience. And from experience comes, I think, wisdom. Um, so that you've run into those big situations and you have seen that they can be dealt with and you now are, have enough wisdom to say, I can't fix this today, I may be not able to fix it tomorrow, but I know that I can, with my colleagues, not necessarily all in uniform, fix it. And finally, self-development. Do I go off? and apply for a CCW fellowship. Do I, rather than playing golf on the weekends, do I get a master's or a doctorate? So those are the sorts of things we're looking at. Okay, um, here is a fairly standard, and it's more or less the, uh, an old version of a Canadian professional development system. And I'm just gonna key in on the senior officer stuff here, but it's, as you can see, it starts with junior officers. It gives them what they need to be effective in their rank at this point, though, we break into the what's now called the Joint Command and Staff Program, Staff College, either in residence or by distance learning. And then at the higher level, a two-week workshop on international uh, relations, uh, the one-year national security program, the pan-government thing that Rolly had talked about, and finally something for the baby general, an executive leaders program. We'll talk about those for a wee bit now. And I'm going to go as fast as ever I can. All happens here where the Air Force started its college, and here are the programs. With a nice, anyway, a nice picture just so you can see what it looks like. Not a big place, smaller than the Defense Academy, I, I will wager, uh, but it satisfies the needs, particularly when you have a distance learning uh, operation going on. Operating environments, we have decided, can be complex, ambiguous. They're going from evolutionary to revolutionary. Officers need general and specific knowledge to deal with some of the things, some of the process, but they need the ability to deal with change. Why do I say that? Well, <clears throat> we take that guy and put him in that job, and almost the first thing he says to the staff and the students in-house at the time is that we have to be capable of avoiding the trap of falling sort of into the default that that's the plan and I have to stick with it. 
He said it better than I just tried to paraphrase it. Knowing how to adapt. And so when this gentleman showed up, he turned the curriculum on its head. He said, I do not want the usual stuff that one gets in staff college. I want the students to be mentally challenged all, well, that sounds bad too. Um, I want them to be intellectually challenged all the way through. So what kind of pedagogy, what kind of learning philosophy should we apply then? Something like this, the lower end of blooms? No, we said, hell no. We want something more active, intellectually active that higher order stuff. How do you get that? Research, debate, reflection. Lots of our time, twice while I was there, and I had the hand on the throttle, I said, we're gonna cut 10% out of the curriculum content. Oh my God, how can we do that? I said, we're gonna do it because there was no time for people to go away and think about what they had heard or read. Um, and it's hard to do because it appears to be free time, but it's not, it's actually highly productive. So. All I have to say, if we do those things, we do them well, we've created a graduate learning environment. Um, so there's all that stuff over in the first box. We want to practice some of the complex, particularly those things that are time-sensitive military activities. So we're going to run exercises and simulations. We would not be doing our job properly. We could not validate ourselves as being, I think, fully effective. And, and I use we in the largest sense of the word if we didn't try to apply some of this knowledge and those processes that we're knowledgeable in in some sort of a volatile, if, if, uh, <clears throat> if fairly safe within the classroom, a volatile scenario at least. We want to expose ourselves to real people, and I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, some of those real people are, are the academics, are they professionals, practitioners? And is there a difference between a professional and a practitioner? Probably not and high-impact speakers. We started for the general officer course to bring in CEOs, ministers of the crown, uh, heads of large uh, non-government organizations. Why? Because those are the sorts of people we're hoping will share their wisdom with our students. Uh, these are the sorts of learning activities. So lectures, discussions, all of this stuff which, you, which staff colleges are jammed with might work well for staff colleges, but we were talking about, again, exercise simulations, symposia, where we're bringing in speakers who may approach the same topic from different directions, God forbid. Case studies, where we're gonna throw a big problem at students and say, okay, what would you do? And now let's see what was done by those who lived through this, the circumstances. Seminar discussions, and we all know that seminar discussions can go any which way. And finally, causing the student to do a little bit of thinking and research on their own, getting to, to write something. Free criticism, Fuller said in 1922, of each other's ideas. That's what we were intending to have. Now, <clears throat> back to this model for a second. What is it we were going to teach? What we were going to teach? Only 30 to 40 percent of the Canadian general officer cohort is actually involved in operations, either directly or indirectly. 60 to 70 percent, and of course the numbers are going to vary over different services, are at that strategic, at that corporate in, in, in the organization, where they're having to deal with public servants, both within defense and across government, with NGOs, with public organizations, with politicians, with academics, with people who don't look, smell, and talk to walk the same way people in this lane do. How do we prepare them? And oh, by the way, the 100% who have to be able to deal with the ethos and ethics of the organization. So what does our curriculum look like then on the National Security Program? Oops, sorry, let's stop here for a second. If we don't prepare 
the generals, the would-be generals, because we're talking about officer five, sixes, anyway, the, the four ringers, if we don't prepare them to work across government, then we're gonna, they're going to be attacked by all the other departments who are looking at defense as nothing more than a cash cow for other public uh, programs. And in the absence of good relationships between executives in or out of uniform, we're going to end up finding ourselves driven by things other than what we might want. Okay, so what is it then that, 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 that the national security program we thought people should study? We reckoned that there were three large lanes. The first one had to deal with strategic security issues, global strategic environment, which is going to change. So we're going to give people a snapshot of what's out there in any particular year, but try and give them the tools to deal with understanding and assessing and living within that context largely. What's happening in other government departments? Is it important to know that education is a very, it's a, it's a resource rich, activity, that healthcare is resource rich. We've had Medicare in Canada for longer than I've been alive. It's not something that's going to go away. Defense be damned. So you have to understand that and accept that as a general officer. Strategic leadership. How do you, how do you lead an organization? I got a rough idea how to lead my, my crew in an aircraft. Did okay as a flight commander. Squadron CO worked out on that badly. But how do I now lead the Air Force? Or how do I lead the Canadian Forces where two-thirds of the people don't wear the same color uniform that I do? And they see me as a bit of a flake. But I gotta do it, because that's my job. Resource management, how do I buy F-35s? Do I want to buy F-35s? How do I explain to government and to the public that I want to buy F-35s? Or anything else, for that matter. And finally, security operations. So not to marginalize it, but if I can't get the organization to run properly, then I probably am not going to have the wherewithal to do security operations properly. Um, I talked about some of the exercise and, uh, exercises and scenarios and about getting the right people there to challenge the students. This is not something that can be done in the schoolhouse, we reckon. So if we're going to have students prepare a memo to cabinet, then we're going to find a retired cabinet uh, minister who's going to chew that memo apart and say, I don't understand this. Why? What is it that you really want me to do with this? Uh, we had one minister who said, I'm having trouble to so, sell. You you've got frigates and you want to buy destroyers, but are they both not sort of gray ships that the Navy operates that are about 4,000 tons each? And the officer said, yep. Okay, so like, I'm not understanding the problem. Well, that to someone in uniform is going to seem ludicrous, but it is the reality of, of, of government. So we want those sorts of people to, to listen, to, to, to contribute, and if necessary, to contribute very critically uh, towards what it is needs to be done. Uh, case studies. Here, just, just that for example, here are the three case studies from the Kennedy School of Governance that we used on the first national security program. So, where's the war fighting? Well, it's a very sort of historical war fighting scenario, but the other two relate to public policy. Oops, sorry, that's my doodad here going off. Uh, Hurricane Katrina. We look at how the, um, home, was it Homeland Security, Bobby, or what was the organization? Sorry. Um, FEMA? Yeah, FEMA. How FEMA failed miserably. We looked at the, the tension between, uh, between Margaret Thatcher, the Army, and the government and police of Northern Ireland <coughs> um, worked out over a long period of time uh, during the Troubles. No easy solution to any of that, and, and solutions changed over time. And that's what we wanted our students to appreciate. 
the learning environment, who are these people that we have in? Clearly academics are appropriate at some points, other times we might want protect practitioners. And so this gentleman here, who was the commander of the Air Force and then the vice chief of defense staff, the guy responsible for procurement and, and policies, he's one of our facilitators because he can bring his experience to the students. Um, and this is actually our, our gang sitting in China uh, several years ago, so that's a translator and that's a military student over there. Um, but it's not about simply putting a directing staff in front of the students. Right? Somebody who has been given a set of pink uh, solution sets and is told to get on with it. It's about trying to find the right people for the right uh, learning outcomes and getting them with the students. Um, who are the learners? As I said, probably about a third Canadian military, a third public servant or, or public uh, member of the public, Corporate executives, absolutely. Um, we want them to understand us as much as we want to understand them. And more importantly, as I said, we do not want the classroom filled with military practitioners who are going to either explicitly or implicitly understand each other without much problem. We want people there to challenge what the military mind thinks is the right way to do something. Um, curriculum philosophy, you can read all that or just the bottom line here, building institutional capacity, one graduate, if you will, at a time. So if the generals are, are well educated, not just on the national security program, but all through their staff college experience, then hopefully we have people who can deal with transformation, not transaction, build informal networks, get out there and represent the profession uh, as it needs to be. A uh, couple of next steps, and I think we're almost at the end here. So. The National Security Program has, is, a, is a program much like ACSD that produces a cohort from which new general and flag officers and air officers, we're almost at that point, uh, will be selected. Um, but what happens when they get bopped on the head and they are made uh, general officers? They come back for a one-week course that does not look at all like the American Capstone Program that goes for several weeks. Uh, they get one week to, to learn how to operate in strategic Ottawa because Several of our officers have avoided going to the national headquarters until they all of a sudden become generals, and then it's too late. It's much too late. So <clears throat> two or three CDSs ago, Chiefs of Defense Staff ago, uh, the incumbent and the fellow that replaced him said, you know, we need something to fill in the gaps in professional learning. Um, we need to send people to changing character war, or we had one, we have one, one, I think, graduate of the Yale World Fellowship. These are the sort of broadening experiences that we, we absolutely have to target to fill in the gaps. Individualized plans, mentoring. Well, mentoring actually is a failed uh, initiative at this point. We can't figure out who's going to provide a little bit of, say, they tried this sort of advice to our general officers. Why? Well, because they're generals. They know it all, right? <clears throat> Some of them think they do. Others, recognize that there's more out there than what their past experience will prepare them for. So this is, this is still um, a work in progress and there's a study team working through, going through it right now, figuring out how to do it. If in, and then hopefully getting it uh, approved at the highest levels. Uh, concluding thoughts. Um, I hope I've described a long and complex process. It's one that I have, uh, which I was totally ignorant of when I walked through the door of the staff college 21 years ago. Um, and unfortunately, 
and with this I would agree with Dr. Murray last week, we have a bunch of practitioners who are all of a sudden uh, cast in the role of educators and don't have any of the theoretical background, don't understand the institutional requirements, but they're going to do the job well because that is the military mindset. Get in there, figure it out quickly, and do it as best you can. And sometimes that just doesn't work because it is complex and it is all about a national capacity that we cannot deal without. Um, so from time to time we have to debate things like what do we learn and when? Uh, do we learn, because we learned something as a captain, do we need to learn it again as a colonel? Well, arguably the context for the colonel based on Rowley's model is largely different. So the title of the activity might be the same, but the actual activity is different. We have to get the right teachers in the classroom. There I was on the very first day with my students, running a three-hour seminar on formal logic. The only thing I knew about formal logic was that I had not understood it in second year university. The second time I had to run that seminar, a year later, I looked around the room and said, do any of you have a degree in philosophy maybe? Luckily, one of my students did. I said, here you go. You have three hours. Deal with it. <clears throat> and I still didn't understand it. By the end of that, go around. So we have to get the right teachers. Uh, so arguably, a retired Chief of, uh, Chief of Defense Staff would make an excellent uh, practitioner teacher, but not necessarily the right academic teacher. The right learners. Uh, we want people who are open to this sort of thing um, and who will recognize that it's part of their professional duty, their responsibility, to internalize both the knowledge that we're going to share with them and the value sets and the intellectual uh, openness. And doing that, we can probably create a learning organization. Now, that is it. So I will stop there. Uh, I have, for myself, quite often, more questions than I have answers. Um, it's, I don't know if, this, if, if my questions are related purely to military education or if they are related to all professional education. And so the thrust of my research while I'm here is to try and understand the long durée of military education. Um, but I would certainly like to test that against, once I've figured out what it looks like, test that against what happens in other professions too, because I think it's, it's important for us as a society to know that our professions are as capable as they possibly can be.